You're listening to the North Canton Chapel podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The North Canton Chapel exists to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. It's our prayer that this podcast will equip you to do just that. We believe that there's nothing like the church united together in gospel community. We'd love if you'd stop in and say hello in person if you're in our neighborhood. Our gathering times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thank you again for joining us today. Let's listen in. Well, good morning, North Canton Chapel. Um, I wish that I could like pop through the screen, the phone, whatever you're watching on this morning, and we could just sit and talk and maybe enjoy a cup of coffee together because I think I know how a lot of you are feeling these days. I'm feeling that way. Um, thinking over these last recent months, we've had to deal with changes that we didn't want, with losses that we didn't expect, um, preparing for a future that it seems like we can't even control. And um, I was thinking about this the other day. It feels kind of like we're a pinball, like bouncing around in somebody else's imaginary world, reacting to this constantly changing environment, um, really impacted by others' decisions. And that can be really tough. So I don't know if you feel that way. I bet that some of you do. So this question that kind of looms, like if you're feeling a little touch of that, is what does it mean to feel secure in very uncertain times? I think probably most of us, if I had to venture a guess, feel less secure today than we did a year ago. Well, the good news is, is God's word recognizes insecurity and it hits it head on. Job is probably the first person you go to looking for security. Job knew exactly what this search for security was like. Jeremiah felt it so poignantly, he called God a liar. Jesus, even in his most humanizing moment, in the garden, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me on the cross? And so this idea of searching for security, where can we go for security? What steps can I take to feel secure in insecure times? Welcome to James chapter 5. So this is week 10 of our 11-week summer teaching series through the book of James here at North Canton Chapel, and you're in for a doozy today. I'm just going to let you know. Uh, James is going to address two groups. First, he's going to talk to the unjust rich, and then he's going to talk to the suffering poor. And just a heads up, he is coming in hot. So you know that sudden burst of energy when a ball player rounds the third base and they're headed for home? Um, it's like they find that extra gear of energy and they transfer all that energy down to their legs so they can make it right across home plate in time. That's a little bit of what James feels like today. So this week and next week, you're going to feel James kind of slip into another gear. The commands are going to come quicker. The metaphors get deeper and even darker. The words sound harsher. It's like James can sense that he's about to run out of ink and he doesn't want to waste a drop. And so as it speaks to security, here's where I want to go this morning. Security is not found in what you have. Security is found in who God is. I'll say that again because it's super important. Security is not found in what you have. Security is found in who God is. And so with that in mind, let's take James chapter 5. We're going to start right in verse 1. Here he goes. He says, Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Well, thanks, James. Like, that makes it so easy to connect. What a great, warm introduction. Well, where is he going with this one? So we're going to get a picture of who exactly he's talking about um, as we unfold the text this morning. But let's start with that command. He says, come now, you who are rich. It's like last week. He invites us to this imaginary dinner table where he says, hey, I need you to sit down. We need to talk about something. And he invites members of his own church to weep and to howl about something. That's an incredibly strong rebuke. What's that about? 
So here's the idea. We don't talk about money much. We don't like to talk about money. We don't talk about wealth or status or income or any of that stuff because it makes us feel nervous. It makes us feel awkward. It kind of turns up the temperature a little bit. But James knows something that eludes most of us, and here it is. It is awkward to talk about money, yes. But when you talk about it through a biblical lens, you actually empty it of its power over you. And so that's where James wants to go this morning. You might be surprised to learn this, but God's Word has over 2,300 verses that deal with money, possessions, and stuff, and our relationship to those things. Solomon warned his son. He said, the one who loves wealth will never be satisfied. Paul warned Timothy. He says, the love of money is the root of all evil. Even Jesus said, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. So it kind of makes you backpedal a bit, though. You go, well, what, what's with all the warning? Why is it so bad to be able to pay my bills? Like, what, what's going on here? We should approach James's words here as what happens when the love of money runs unchecked. And you can see, as we'll get to in a minute, he's not pushing so hard against rich people or wealthy people, but what he's pushing against is when wealth blows my life so far off course, like a sailboat on the ocean, that I'm going to shipwreck my life without I even know it. And so in these verses that James is going to lay out, there's four charges um, against this type of person. And together they form a rough sketch of who James has in mind when he says the rich. And so just a heads up, um, these charges get progressively more severe. So what are they? Here's the first charge. He says, you hoard your stuff. Take a look in verse 2. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Now there's a ton of really vivid imagery in there and we're going to get to it, but I want you to imagine something with me. So imagine you open up your banking app and you find that your last paycheck never went through. It's supposed to be there, you expected the deposit, but through whatever glitch and whatever system, it's not there. And you have a mortgage payment and doctor bills coming up and you're not going to be able to clear it. What's your heart do in that moment? What thoughts fly into your mind? What's your stomach feel like? I've been there and it's terrible. It's this debilitating, disorienting, sickening, panic-inducing feeling. Well, the American Psychological Association puts out a study every year called Stress in America. It is not um, fun, light reading, but it pops the hood on our national fears and gives us a sense of what our culture is really afraid of. Not surprisingly, two of the leading causes of stress in the United States right now are number one, feature of our nation, and two, money. Money is one of our cultural fears. Now, here's how this works. We become extremely attached to the things that we own. And that attachment causes anxiety when we worry that something outside of our control, like a robbery or a house fire or an economic downturn or a job loss, can take those things from us. And so what we do is we build up insurances, we hoard, and we protect. And it isn't long before the things that we own actually end up owning us. That's called hoarding when taken to an extreme. Hoarding, built on worry, supported by fear, can twist and turn the human soul into this self-protective, inward, hollow, worrisome, faceless thing. And it's what James's audience is guilty of right here. But is hoarding a sin? Like, really? Like, worthy of weeping and howling? Here's the key insight. Behind every worry is an idol. And that idol is called control. 
Every time you give in to worry and you give worry real estate in your heart, you tell God, you know what? I've got this. I don't need you. I can handle it. When you know full well that you can't. And it sounds like this. Is I've got to make sure everything's okay. I've got to shore up shortfalls and mitigate my risks. I've got to make sure everything works out according to my plan. And then here's the linchpin. And these things are going to help me do that. Sounds a lot like idle talk, doesn't it? Not every idol looks like a golden calf. So to James's imagery here, he says a few very terrible things. Did you catch him? He says riches, and then he talks about garments, and he talks about gold and silver. Those are like the first century equivalent of what it meant to be really well off and be secure. You can think about them like a big house, a nice car, and an airtight 401k. And James imagines a scenario at the end of verse 3, which he says, in the last days, these things are personified. And he imagines them standing up to speak as evidence in a trial. And he says that they're going to be testifying against you. Did you catch that? Riches are rotted. Garments are moth-eaten. Gold and silver, which ironically are precious metals and never corrode, are corroded. They're literally rust-eaten. And this is a hoarder's worst nightmare. Everything I've saved, everything I've kept, everything I've protected is now turned against me. And underneath this quietly murmuring question that James is hoping that we'll start to ask, where is my security? Your hoarding is rooted in fear, and your fear is rooted in worry, and your worry is rooted in this soft, subtle, silent idol called control. But this idolatry of control actually has a relational element to it, and that's charge number two. You cheat others. Take a look in verse four. He says, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you have kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Now James takes us from the hoarder's house to payday at the edge of a field. This verse, the second charge, starts with a command. James says, behold, or your translation might say, look. This is his way of saying, don't believe me that you've got an idol problem. Look how your fear shows itself. You're stingy and you're unethical. Look out your window. Look at your fields. Now, in the ancient world, in James's day, most of those people who worked as field laborers were transients. They moved wherever the work was. So they didn't have a strong sense of community rootedness. They didn't have influence. They didn't have a voice. And so they were a very easy people group to oppress. Now, this is an eternal problem. We know this. We see it in our culture, in our world, and in our country today. So what's James do? Again, he personifies something. Just like all that moth-eaten, rusted stuff from above, now it's the wages that are calling out, almost like they're being held against their will. And what really starts to sound serious is when he says, the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Now, this is a big deal. This is a cry of distress and suffering. You know the other times in God's word where something cries and it reaches the ears of the Lord of hosts? The first one is in Genesis 4 where Cain kills Abel, and Abel's blood cries out, and the Lord hears him. And then Exodus chapter 2, verse 23, Egypt oppresses Israel, and Israel cries out, and the Lord hears them. David in Psalm 34, when he's evading an enemy, he says, I cried out, and the Lord heard me. But then there's this thing, the Lord of hosts. What's with that title? You probably don't use that at the kitchen table or at dinner time or when you're heading to bed. This title is only used when God is in protective attack mode. 
When David is standing in front of Goliath, he calls on the Lord of hosts. When God is leading his army, he's called the Lord of hosts. Whenever God's people cry out for justice, he's called the Lord of hosts. This is the God of the universe inclining his ear to the oppressed in supportive sympathy. So let's put this second charge together. God is aware when injustice is being done, and he's got his sword in his hand, and there's going to be a smackdown, and you don't want to be on the wrong side of that. Now, unless you own a working farm, which is not many of us, this is probably a little bit disconnected from where we are today. So let's make this stick. Here's James's point. We can become so focused on securing our own well-being that we marginalize the well-being of others. And that is something very, very serious. God didn't give you your resources so that you could get yourself security. God loaned you his resources so that you could bring him glory. So be just and pay the workmen. That's charge two. Here's charge three. You're all about yourself. Verse five, he says, You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. Now this one kind of takes a dark turn. Here's what James is talking about. He lobs out these two words, luxury and self-indulgence. So luxury on its own, this is not a bad word. Um, it's used a lot of times in the Old Testament and the New Testament to talk about provision, to talk about when you have just enough, okay? Maybe a little bit more, but like your cup is just about full. But then when you pair it with self-indulgence, now this word is a hot mess. It means 100% pleasure pointed 100% at you. James talked a little bit about this last week. It can mean anything from sensual pleasure on one end to full-blown addiction on the other. It's like a drink that doesn't satisfy or quench your thirst, but you keep drinking anyway. It's like playing with fire that's never consumed. It's like acting with zero thought for any consequences. Does that sound like a world that we're familiar with at all? And James says that when you do this, you're fattening your heart for the slaughter. You're like a cow lining up for the slaughterhouse. I told you this got really dark. And James is being intentionally ironic here. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, you are using your wealth to feed yourself instead of the hungry and the needy around you. And you're feeding yourself so well that you're taking more than what you actually need. And that overindulgence is like letting your soul get fat on the world's buffet. <laughs> and if that wasn't ominous enough, the irony gets deeper and darker when James suggests that there's a day coming when all that abundance and all that overindulgence is actually going to work against you. What's he say? He says you're fattening your heart in the day of slaughter. It doesn't do us any good to mince words here. He's talking about the day, looking out to the horizon for each one of us, where we're going to have to give an account for how we spent our life on earth. This is his very vivid and very dark description of the day of judgment. So here's James's dark but poignant promise. Self-indulgence leads to self-destruction. Always. Or if you want to put it another way, if your life is all about you, then you is all you're ever going to enjoy. But James has one final stroke in sketching this picture of the unjust rich. Charge number four, you dehumanize the vulnerable. Take a look in verse six. He says, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Now this last charge presents a little bit of an interpretive problem for us, and here it is. Does James mean someone specific? Is he talking about a specific literal person or is he speaking more generally? And is he talking about murder specifically or is this kind of like some poetic embellishment? So at first glance, um, 
it's probably really compelling to look at this as maybe an allusion to Jesus, isn't it? Where he says, well, he's an innocent person who was murdered and he didn't speak out, he didn't fight back. But here's my take. As compelling as that is, um, it seems a little forced. It's odd that James would introduce Jesus in such a quick glance. Um, I think there's something else going on here. So a lot of commentators take a look at that word condemn, where he says, you've condemned. And that suggests a legal courtroom. So in the first century, just like today, a lot of courtrooms are governed by patronage, bribery, and a sense of closeness, of influence, and not necessarily justice. And so it's possible that what James is alluding to is the unjust rich who he's been building his case against, leveraging their influence through the judicial system to deprive the poor of their rights and their wages, basically letting them die. And so here's my conclusion between the two. I don't know because the text is not clear, and so I'm not going to push it. But whether or not James is talking about a specific person or if he's talking about a judicial system, here's his point. The love of money has a way of twisting our heart. Hear me. We are made for generosity. I don't know if you believe that, but I think it's absolutely true. And I'm not talking about like financial generosity. We're not in the middle of a building campaign or a budget thing or like I don't, we don't need anything from you. I mean generosity of your life. This goes way deeper than any of that stuff. Hear me, when the creative God of the universe set about to landscape the human soul, he did it in a way that we would never find ultimate fulfillment in our stuff, but he designed our soul and shaped our souls in such a way that we would find profound fulfillment in giving stuff away to people who need it and that would bring him glory. And so when we cultivate an almost unnatural love of money, we're actually going against the grain of our souls. We'll promote systems and structures that favor the rich and leave the poor vulnerable. We'll start to see people for how they can benefit us rather than how we can serve them. And we'll start to see people as objects to be used rather than image bearers of a holy God. Can you think of anything less like Jesus? So that's James's fourth and final charge, the dehumanizing of the vulnerable. Now, let's take these four charges together. What's James really driving at? The problem isn't wealth. The problem is worldly thinking. The problem isn't money in some account somewhere. It's idolatry in my heart. I don't need stuff. I need to be changed. Security isn't found in what you have, even if it's a pile of money. Security is found in who God is. So we're going to get to the second half of what James is going to talk about here in a little bit, the second audience he's going to speak to. But before we do, I want to give you four things to consider as you evaluate your relationship with wealth, whatever that is for you. So first thing I want you to consider, quit the American dream. Quit the American dream. Here's what I mean. When it comes to a theology of wealth, we need to be discerning enough to separate what elements of our faith are American and what elements of our faith are biblical. I spent a lot of time listening to people walk through the tensions that come with life, right? And I'm amazed at how many of those tensions are financial in nature. It's debt, it's bills, it's budgeting, it's financial planning, like whatever. And so if I had to summarize what I think to be like the typical middle class, like financial goals, those goals might sound something like this. I want to I get out of debt, which is usually the first thing people say. I want to buy a home or finish paying for it. I want to fund retirement. I want to fund the kids' college. I want to have a comfortable, secure life and give 10% away when I can. And here's my caution. 
you can do all those things, and they're all very well-intentioned, and they sound pretty solid. But in your heart, all you may have done is put a little halo around the American dream, baptized it, and called it success. In finances, as in every area of life, we need to be very careful, we need to be discerning enough to pull apart what elements of our faith are American and what elements of our faith are biblical. Generosity, empathy, selflessness, the giving awayness of our resources, these are virtues that are espoused in the New Testament, but they are nowhere in our culture, are they? Get what you can versus give what you can. Put yourself first versus putting others first. Live your best life now versus live for eternity. If we want a biblical theology of wealth, we need to quit the American dream. Consideration number two, beware of success. Beware of success. Success can kill your generosity, can't it? It can kill your sense of gratitude. You get to a point where you've earned so much, you've done so much for yourself, you've made things happen for yourself, and you pat yourself on the back, that you actually forgot that God was behind the whole thing to begin with. Let me give you a great model for how to handle whatever success comes your way in life. Um, If I asked you to name the most successful king in Israel's history, who would it be? The most successful king in the Bible, who would it be? Probably David, right? David, the shepherd boy who became a poet, the poet who became a king, the king who guaranteed Israel's future, right? Or so he thought. David did more to secure the future of Israel than any other king. But at the end of his life, looking at a legacy of success behind him. Do you want to know King David's last prayer over the people that he lovingly led for 40 years? Here it is. It's in 1 Chronicles chapter 29. Here's what he says. Last words, last prayer. He says, but who am I and what is my people that we should be able to thus to offer willingly? As if to say like, what right do I even have to worship you, God? For all things come from you, and of your own we have given you. He's like, every joy that I've got in my life, that came from you, and so I'm just giving it back to you. For we are strangers before you and sojourners, as all our fathers were. All our days on earth are like a shadow, and there is no abiding. Do you hear how his self-perception sobered as he got to the point in his life where he was able to evaluate what really mattered? What's his point? Earthly success can never outpace heartfelt worship. Earthly success should never outpace heartfelt worship. Our lives, as brief as they are, David calls them a shadow. James called them a mist that vanishes, right? These are just a few decades-long opportunity to mirror back God's greatness to himself. Your life is not a success story. Your life is a worship experience, if you view it rightly. And that's a key insight for those who are eager to climb the corporate ladder. Earthly success should never outpace heartfelt worship. Which brings me to consideration number three, speaking of worship. Number three, worship the giver, not the gifts. Worship the giver, not the gifts. The greatest tragedy of the unjust rich in James is that they separated God's gifts from God himself. And that's a huge problem. God gave you what you have. That's not your paycheck. That's his provision on loan. You didn't earn it, he gave it to you. And he gave it to you because he wants you to use it well. Wealth grips our heart when we forget that God gave it to us in whatever measure that is for you. We get so wrapped up in our love for money that we hoard it, we obsess over it, and we're not free to enjoy it because we're honestly afraid of it. And so what's the solution? Here's the insight I wanna give you. 
As you loosen your hold on wealth, wealth will loosen its hold on you. And I promise you that's true. That would look like maybe partnering with one of our local ministry partners here, locally in Stark County, or globally here at North Canton Chapel. It's releasing this hold of wealth on ourselves because we love it. And God says, just give it away. Worship me through giving. And again, that's not because we're in the middle of a budget crisis. That's just what God calls us to do. Mandy and I do that. Most of our pastors and staff, we all are pushing that direction because we feel that burden too. But it doesn't necessarily mean that. It could mean something simpler. This might also mean just learning to see the simple gifts that he's already given you as an opportunity for worship. Let me give you an example. I think there's something really good for our souls when we sit down and enjoy a good meal with good friends. We take our kids out to eat and spend time with them. When Mandy and I go on a date together, that's really good for our soul. We learn to see God in those places. And when we see him there enjoying a good meal together, enjoying conversation, that does our souls some good. So order the glass of wine if you want. I said the glass, not the bottle. Enjoy that time with friends. Enjoy that time with your spouse if you're married or your kids if you're a parent. Those are like a trail of breadcrumbs that lead us back to a good God who gives us good gifts for us to enjoy them. And they loosen wealth's grip on us because they remind us of where wealth comes from. I know I'm grinding on this kind of hard, but some of you, you need to demystify your relationship with money. You just need to see it as something that came from God and he wants you to worship him with it. So worship the giver, not the gifts. Consideration number four, and then we'll get to what James has to say next. Close the gap. Close the gap. Here's what I mean. One of the greatest challenges that we have with wealth, especially here in Northeast Ohio, which is a fairly affluent area of the country, is the distance that we put between ourselves and genuine need in our world. Here's what I mean. The guy at the end of the off-ramp the woman with the cardboard sign, the family sitting underneath the overpass. So in my time, I've heard people talk about how to handle the situations in different ways. And some people say, oh, I'll never give them money because they're going to spend it on whatever. Or some people say, well, I don't give money because what I'd rather do is spend time with that person and, you know, that. But it's digital, too. It's not just something you see from your car. You know, you're scrolling through Facebook and, oh, man, here's another article about sex trafficking in Stark County. I'm just going to keep scrolling, right? Or, oh, pray for this family who lost their house in a fire. My whole tearful, you know, frowny face. I'm going to slide my thumb over and keep going. I'm going to say something that I think is probably going to sound a little bit pushy and a little uncomfortable, but here we go. Um, I think a lot of times we say those well-crafted policies, um, and they can be a smokescreen to create distance or even to allow for apathy in our hearts. We say these principle-sounding things because we genuinely don't know what to do. We know what we're uncomfortable doing. We know what we won't do. But few Christians know how to engage and handle those tough situations. So let me help you out. When you follow Jesus, you release your right to apathy. You don't get to not care anymore. And that's the challenging part, isn't it, right? You don't have to do everything, but you have to do something. And so if you're not comfortable doing the quick thing, like giving somebody a few bucks or sharing your lunch or giving somebody a ride or something like that, that's okay. That's your call. That's between you and Jesus. But my question is, if you're uncomfortable with that, what are you going to do? And it's probably going to be uncomfortable. If you're waiting to feel comfortable to engage pain in your world, that ain't going to happen. That's between you and Jesus. You don't have to do everything, but you have to do something. And just one quick little insight before we leave this one. More distance is usually not the answer. So 
James has unloaded this fire hydrant of force on the unjust rich, and now he's going to turn the coin over. And with the same intensity, the same directness, and interestingly, the same vision of God, James now wants to bring comfort to those who are suffering. But before we get there, I want to acknowledge something. So for the last 20 minutes or so, you've heard me talk about wealth. Um, and some of you right now are saying, like, dude, I just lost my job. I can't take my kids out to eat, much less I can't get to Giant Eagle, you know? And, and I'm not worried about becoming unjust, unjustly wealthy. I'm just trying to figure out how to pay my mortgage. And in these economic times that we find ourselves in, where we do feel like a pinball bouncing around in somebody else's world, it can be incredibly overwhelming to even think about how to plan for tomorrow. And so I want to bring this idea of security back up. Again, security is not found in what you have. That means if you have a pile of money or if you barely have two pennies to roll together. Security is not found in what you have. Security is found in who God is. And you're going to see that right now. So James zooms out. He's done talking only to the unjust rich, and now he wants to talk to everyone. He's told the rich to weep and to howl because God sees how they oppress the poor. But now he wants to talk to his brothers, to poor Christians, and he encourages them to be patient. He hangs his thoughts here on three verbs. See if you can spot them. Take a look in verse 7. He says, be patient, therefore, brothers. You see the tone change? Until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Interesting, like there's early rains and there's late rains. Some of you are like, we're caught in the middle between rainstorms. We don't know what's going to happen. So you also be patient. Establish your hearts. What a great phrase that is. For the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, consider the, or take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So did you catch them? Three words, three ideas, three really tough ideas. And I want you to Look at these three ideas as an antidote for the anxiety that money or the lack of money can sometimes bring into our lives. What's the first one? He says, be patient. Be patient. Now, you, you can think maybe that patience is like very, very passive. It means like just sitting back and waiting, like twiddling your thumbs. And that's partly true. But I think one of the things that James wants us to see here is that patience is a decision. You have to decide to be patient. It's work. Right? Because my inner selflessness or selfishness says, like, I'm going to fix this. I'm going to do it. And sometimes you've got to sit back and wait for the Lord. This is Psalm 27. It's over and over again in the Bible. Be patient. But then the second one, stand firm. Or the ESV says, establish your hearts. Now, this one has a little bit more of an active tone to it, doesn't it? This is William Wallace at the battlefront. This is the defensive line at the red zone where they're saying, okay, I'm not going to take new ground. I just need to hold this line really well. It's this steely resolve to not give in, to not back out. Practically, what this looks like is to not repay anger for anger or hate for hate. It's to, to hold back that impulse to lash back out at somebody. Don't give up the line. So be patient, establish your hearts. And then the third one comes in verse 11. He says, persevere or remain steadfast. This means to continue on the course that you've been walking despite a constant attack. And this is why we're all exhausted right now, aren't we? Nobody I know is feeling well-rested. Nobody's feeling focused. Nobody's feeling great right now. 
because we're all under attack. We're trying to figure out what the next thing is. And James just says, look, stay the course. Keep simple, keep narrow, stay the course. But here's where James wants us to go. And it's what I really want us to see. I don't want you to see what to do. Because those three things are really good, but you would pick those up anyway. I don't want you to see what to do. Um, because it's kind of like adding another burden to your back, right? Like, James, this is 2020. Like, this is the year of crazy. I, I can't handle more things to do. I don't want you to see the what. I want to direct your attention to the why. Because this is me just being your pastor for a little bit. I don't think you need more things to do. I definitely don't think you need your wrist slapped for doing something wrong. What we need is a reminder for why we're doing this whole Christian life thing anyway. There's a reason. And like me, your eyes skimmed right over it and you probably didn't catch it. There's a reason why patience is called for. There's a reason to establish our hearts. There's a reason that we should persevere. And it isn't because we're awesome or we're invincible or we're superhuman. Where is our hope? It's nestled right there in the middle of verse 9. Here's what he says. And behold... The judge is standing at the door. Do you hear James just drop the mic? Behold, the judge is standing at the door. What's his point? The judge is coming, and he's coming soon. And when he gets here, buckle up. We ought to draw a lot of strength from that. The judge is standing at the door. Security isn't found in what you have. Security is found in who God is. And so here's where we got to drive this thing. That image of God coming back as a judge is really good news for some of you. The unjust rich, they live like fools living their best life now because they don't think that day is ever going to come. And so let's live it up. But children of God see that day differently because God is our Father and we can't wait for the clouds to part and for Jesus to come back. And so let me close our morning with this. There's some of you right now, you're watching and you're listening, and that's great. We're super happy to have you engage. But the thing that I'm worried most for you is that this life is the best life that you have. And you're looking for your security in the next newsfeed refresh, the latest update about a stimulus package, or the latest study about whatever, the election results, geez. And you're constantly like anxious, and you're constantly angry, and you're constantly overwhelmed. You're disappointed in a country that's left you, a culture that's waning, and a world that is failing. And so let me tell you the truth. You are disappointed because you are looking to the wrong things for your deliverance. You are disappointed because you are looking to the wrong things for your deliverance. You've pinned all of your hopes on the small, flimsy deliverances of the world. And they're a form of the deliverance that you're going to see in God, but they are just so small. And you are meant for so much more. And so if you don't know Jesus, this judge who's going to come back and evaluate everyone, if you don't know him personally, I'm not talking just going to church and watching stuff online and, you know, and, and saying the Christian things, doing the Christian. If you don't know him personally and if he's not Lord of your life, what are you waiting for? There's a big difference between going to church or in this case watching church happen online and having Jesus be Lord of your life. I'm not trying to leverage fear, but... He has his hand on the doorknob of time and he loves you and he wants to be with you. And before he opens it, he wants to make sure that you know him. And so that's my question today. Whether you're rich or whether you're struggling, whether all your needs are met in abundance or whether you're sitting there biting your nails about what's coming next week, do you know Jesus? 
Security is not found in what you have. Security is found in who God is. Let me pray for us. Our Father, you are undoubtedly good. Without question, your plan is perfect and you've been working it out since the dawn of time. You are sovereign and you are free and you are in control. God, help us to look beyond this world. Help us to lift our eyes a little bit higher to see what you are doing. Open our hands and let us be free with the things that we've been given so that we can bring you glory. Father, we love you. We say thank you for Jesus and it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, it goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at nchapel.com forward slash give. Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces making much of Jesus every day to everyone.